0: Welcome to Taxland with me, Fletch Heineman,
1: And me, Sarah Lancaster.
0: Well, Sarah, welcome back to season two.
1: Yeah, happy 2024.
0: Yeah, and so we've got some exciting plans for Taxland this year. Now, I know it's going to be a massive six months coming up for you because you will have back-to-back-to-back-to-back hearings in the AAT and the, the Federal Court. But you're still going to be here with us for Taxland.
1: Of course I am. Of course. <laughs> it should be fun.
0: Yeah, nice. <laughs>
1: All right. So, uh, yes, you're right. Uh, I'm going to have a very big six months. But anyway, Taxland will keep us sane, as I like to say. So a couple of new developments for us this year in our podcast. Our wonderful producer, executive producer, Vicky, has carried out some podcast-related statistical analysis. That was a very impressive slide deck. Very impressive. Uh, so we now have a new channel on Spotify. Uh, please subscribe to the new channel so you don't miss an episode. We wouldn't want you to miss an episode. Uh, All you need to do is search Taxland, one word, to find us.
0: And also for 2024, we're going to be lining up some special guests this season. Ooh,
1: watch this space.
0: Yeah. Um, And we wanted to start 2024 with a big payroll tax topic because of the amount of audit activity that we're seeing in this space right now. So today we're going to be talking about payroll tax grouping.
1: Hooray, my favourite tax. This week, we're going to be looking at what causes entities to be grouped and the consequences of that. And then next fortnight, we're going to look at one of the ways that entities can be excluded or escape a payroll tax group, and that is uh, by applying to the commissioner and receiving an exclusion order.
0: Yeah. Okay. Nice. So, all right. Well, let's start with um, what causes entities to be grouped for payroll tax purposes. So... Very
1: good question. It's It's a very loaded question. It is
0: very loaded, but we've got to start somewhere. So um, let's start there. So, all right, well, let's get back to basics for a minute. So, when does payroll tax apply? And Double-barreled question: Why were the grouping provisions included?
1: Yeah, good question, Fletch. So, payroll tax applies to taxable wages. So, wages has a very specific uh, and very broad definition in the payroll tax legislation. Generally, it mm-hmm. includes things like wages you pay to your employees, and then one of my favourite sub paragraphs in the uh, definition itself is this catch-all or anything else that's deemed to be wages under this act. So, you're looking at their payments to contract under relevant contracts, Mm -hmm. for example, that we've talked about before. Um, But for the grouping provisions, um, if you go back to the start, so you pay payroll tax on your taxable wages, Mm -hmm. um, you get a mm, a threshold and a deduction. So Mm -hmm. effectively you don't have to register uh, to pay payroll tax as an employer until you reach a certain threshold and there's a monthly threshold, a weekly threshold and an annual threshold. But let's just go with the annual threshold because it's a bit easier to keep track of.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So in Queensland, for example, at the moment you register for payroll tax when you have taxable wages of at least $1.3 million. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at businesses who have a wages bill of $1.3 million. Now the grouping provisions um, then become very relevant because uh, the wages – the definition of wages for the purpose of that threshold is an Australian group's taxable wages. Mm -hmm. So if you have two separate businesses run by two different companies but they're grouped for payroll tax purposes, both of those companies' combined taxable wages will count when you're trying to figure out whether or not they should be registered for payroll tax. So if I use a very, very simple example, you might have a company paying wages of three hundred grand a year By themselves, they wouldn't need to be registered. Uh, But then if they're grouped, if they're in a payroll tax group with another entity who is already registered and paying $1.5 million in taxable wages a year, for example, then those two entities will be grouped. So that's Mm. step one, whether or not you need to register. The next part, though, is that you get a threshold or you get a deduction, basically, um, when you register for payroll tax. So for the purposes of the deduction the only one entity in a payroll tax group will get the benefit of that deduction. And that entity is going to be what they call the designated group employer or the mm-hmm. DGE.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so effectively you don't, you only get the benefit of that deduction once rather than each entity that employs individuals.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Oh, and question number two. I forgot the (laughs) double-barrelled question, Fletcher, You're trying to trip me up here. So payroll tax grouping provisions were brought in to escape essentially. They're brought in for an anti-avoidance point of view. So Mm. they were brought in um, to counter tax avoidance for businesses who were setting up individual entities to employ people to get within, to get under the um under the threshold for registration. So each
0: new business is under the threshold, and nobody yeah. pays payroll tax. Yes, yeah, correct. And therefore, we look at grouping.
1: Yeah. So we'll get to this in this episode and the next episode as well. But you get the that leads to, I guess, the the one of the overarching issues with payroll tax grouping is that uh, the legislation has quite purposefully been drafted so that the grouping provisions are extremely broad mm-hmm. to catch. And they catch a lot of um, businesses and a lot of entities and, you know, in some cases quite quite unintentionally will be grouped. And then you've got a very broad power for the commissioner to exclude entities. Um, Well, we say broad, but... In fact, in practice, how that's actually implemented may not be that broad at (laughs) all. Um, But the idea behind it is you've got a broad grouping provision to get any, you know, to get all the appropriate businesses within the group. And then you've got an exclusion power for the commissioner to exclude entities from that group.
0: Yeah. All right. And then before we get into some examples... Can we also talk about joint and several liability for members of payroll tax group? So joint and several liability is a very legalistic word practically. I mean, what does that mean for businesses?
1: Yeah, practically um, it means that everyone in a payroll tax group, every member of a payroll tax group uh, will be liable. The term joint and several just essentially means that every each and every one of you are liable for any mm-hmm. unpaid tax liabilities of a member of the group. Um, this one can have particularly uh, problematic consequences when you've got um, asset holding or passive asset holding entities within mm. a payroll tax group. And we'll get into that in a bit. But if you've got, um, there've been cases that have looked at this, you might have, for an example, a, um, a family trust who you know, holds a variety of different assets uh, that will be a member of a payroll tax group, even though it doesn't employ or engage any sort of individuals, mm. um, it's, you know, it's not running an active trading business, so I use that in the general sense.
2: Yep.
1: Um, if that entity is a member of a payroll tax group and, you know, someone's running a construction business and doesn't pay its payroll tax liabilities, mm. um, the commissioner is well within is right now to you know, recover that unpaid payroll tax liability from the family trust that holds all the assets. Mm. So you can get some pretty nasty consequences.
0: Yeah, I think, Yeah, and I think that's really important because a lot of people will assume that assets that they've put in their discretionary trust are as safe as can be in sort of a modern structuring uh, environment. But for payroll tax...
1: Doesn't yeah, it doesn't check out, doesn't yeah. track. You also get really hard situations. Um, you yeah, know, I've had a few matters where you might have two people who have a con- who have an interest without getting too far ahead of ourselves in a mm. number of businesses, but there might be a third person just sort of sitting in the wings, um, doesn't have much of an interest in one of their businesses. Mm. That person doesn't want to be liable for yeah. unpaid liabilities that he
0: has no, or they have no control over. Yeah, so. and often no sight over oh, as Absolutely,
1: well. mm. yeah. All
0: right, let's get into um, a case study because I think with these talking about grouping, um, it's helpful if we can um, play with some case studies. So starting position, okay, so we're friends, right? Yep. Um, so we could conceivably run businesses together. It's very true. We kind of do.
1: Someone says, "Yeah, I was going to say." Some <laughs> could say we already do, but anyway. <laughs> All right.
0: Um, so let's just say that we're both directors and shareholders of two companies. Mm-hmm. Um, the first company runs a coffee shop by the side of a very picturesque lake in the Sunshine Coast hinterland. We can tell we're coming off some holiday uh, season at the moment. So well, some
1: of us are anyway. <laughs> it's very relaxed. We'll go back to that busy season months that I've got coming up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, and it's got very good coffee. And then the second company runs a busy dog grooming business in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. So we're both exactly 50 50 for each company, both at the director level and the shareholder level. So each company at the moment um, pays wages of a million dollars, which means that I think both companies are doing quite well.
1: Yeah, also. Um
0: And in this example where we don't live in tax land, we haven't registered either company for payroll tax. So starting position, are the two companies grouped and then what are the consequences?
1: Yeah, so the two companies are grouped, Fletch. Uh, The reason for that, and I'm going to use some words from the legislation, the reason for that is a set of you and me uh, will have a controlling interest that is more than
2: 50%
1: in the underlying entity that runs each of the businesses. So in both companies. Now we have a controlling interest together because together we have a hundred percent of the power to exercise um, votes, both at a director level and Mm. a shareholder level. So the test that we're talking about is the commonly controlled businesses test. It's one of the, One of the parts that commonly controlled businesses can be grouped. So that test looks at um, whether or not a person or a set of persons has a controlling interest that is more than 50% um, either as a director and can exercise more than 50% of the votes at a director's meeting Mm -hmm. or as a shareholder. And you can influence more than 50% of the votes at a shareholder level. Mm. So if I, if I, it's just really important to keep in mind that it's more than 50%. And yep. in this example, we're looking at a set of you and me. Yeah. So if, for example, um, I was, oh, we will get into this a bit later, but if one of us just controlled the entity, only that person will have the controlling interest in that entity.
0: Okay, so let's, let's change the fact pattern um, and then say, so I retire to the Sunshine Coast hinterland so that I can spend more time with my coffee. By you can leave
2: me with the dogs <laughs> in Brisbane.
1: Good <laughs> on you.
0: <laughs> well, I got to write the case study. So. <laughs> um, so I'm now the sole director and shareholder of the coffee shop company.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you become the sole director and shareholder of the dog grooming business in Brisbane. Are we grouped then?
1: Not under the commonly controlled businesses test because, again, if you look at um, your – so here we're looking at a person or set of persons who has a controlling interest in one or more entities. Mm -hmm. In the coffee shop business, because you're the only director and shareholder, you are the person that has the controlling interest in that company. Yep. And the same situation for the dog grooming business. I'm the only person who has a controlling interest in that company. Mm. But – together, we don't have a controlling interest in either because you're now out and I'm doing my dog grooming business all all by myself.
0: I'll still come and visit. But I think the important thing, and sometimes the thing that we miss, we see people miss here is that people understand that for commonly controlled businesses it's more than 50% but then sometimes um, miss the requirement to look at what happens for sets of people.
1: Absolutely. It happens um, all the time and you get to some really tricky, I mean this is a pretty simple example where you're looking at two people Mm. but if you have these two people operating a business equally at 50-50, you might then have a business where you've got a third person involved and you share it equally so you've got 33.3333% interest at a shareholder and director level as well. And you also miss some complicated issues because, again, it's not just that you're a shareholder of a company, but it's that you can control the power attached to voting shares Mm. in that company. So you might have a company that's issued, we were looking at this the other day, you might have a company that's issued ordinary shares, but you've then got different classes of shares. So it's Mm. really important that you go to the constitution to figure out whether or not those classes of shares have voting rights mm. and whether or not that shifts your percentage of control at a shareholder level.
0: Mm. I think in practice I see a lot of examples where um, people will set up businesses together. So two people might go in and then they're 50-50 um, and whatever they're 50-50 in will then be grouped for payroll tax purposes. And then they want to expand the nature of the business. But when they expand, they'll bring in a third person person um, and if they bring that third person in at a 33.3% interest, all of those new new businesses will be grouped mm-hmm. because the initial set, even though each one would only be 33.3% testing the first two, so you and me in this example, um, we'd still have 66%. Correct. Yep. Yeah.
1: Happens all the time or the other fun one that i see is where you might bring in other people to the business at a director level but you you might mm. have the same original owner who's you know deriving all the profits from the business and is the only, shareholder. the only shareholder so people think that because we've got a different director and they're the ones carrying on the carrying on the business mm. as opposed to looking at the underlying entity that own, like the control and the underlying entity. Yeah. They think that that somehow has shifted them out because they're no longer grouped at a director level but they forget about the the common shareholder across different businesses.
0: Yeah. I think that the, that's probably, I mean, sort of sounds obvious as we're going through it from a structuring point of view, but often we will see people concentrate on the director level mm. when we're looking at commonly controlled businesses and forgetting to look at the, the shareholder level and mm. sometimes vice versa. But it's really important that we've got to look at both particularly if we're going to say that an entity is no longer part of a group or was never part of a group um testing it at the director level and the shareholder level and as you say to test at the shareholder level really we need a, a company extract to see who the shareholders are but also the company constitution to pick up the where the voting rights are
2: yeah
0: yeah Um, All right. So let's not get too far. We already have (laughs) down (laughs) down the track of commonly controlled businesses, but there are three tests for payroll tax grouping. So you can get grouped in one of three ways. Um, Do you want to talk about those at a high level to start with?
1: Yep. So we've got the commonly controlled business tests. We've got uh, the related bodies corporate tests and the common employees test. Yeah. I also add like a fourth one in there controversially, but maybe not so controversially. I call it the, the tracing of corporations test where we trace through the lineage of corporations. Yeah. You don't see that too much though in practice. So it's it's looking at whether or not you've got related bodies corporate.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And that pulls out the definition uh, from the Corporations Act. So you've got a body corporate which is defined as a holding company of another company, a subsidiary mm-hmm. of another body corporate or a subsidiary of a holding company of a body corporate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the subsidiary definition looks at um, the control of one entity's composition of the first body's board, mm-hmm. um, or where the second entity has uh, the control or can cast more than half of the maximum number of votes um, at a meeting of the of the first company. Um, or holds more than half of the issued capital. So really Mm. you're looking there at subsidiary companies that have essentially more or can control more than half of the number of votes um, at a meeting of the first company.
0: Yeah. Yep. Um, All right. And then the test for common employees. So – what is a common employee? Does this mean that we've got, if we've got an employee that works in your dog grooming business, that company during the week, and then comes out and works at the coffee shop on the weekend, um, are they common employees?
1: Yeah, really good question. This is such a minefield. So three tests for grouping, three or four tests for grouping, there are then three tests for whether or not you've got a common employee Um, I need to read the section because when you read the section out loud, it really reinforces how broad I think.
0: It's not intuitive, is it? What you say, what you think is a common employee is not a common employee.
1: No, it's not. That's exactly right. So the first test is if one or more employees of an employer Mm -hmm. performs duties in connection with one or more businesses carried on by the employer and one or more other person's then the person employing them mm-hmm. and each of those other persons constitute a group. So in that example if we, if you've got if we've both got an equal interest in the dog grooming business and our coffee business mm-hmm. and one of the employees of the coffee uh, one of the employees of the dog grooming business comes up and works potentially caught by that. Yep. Okay, second test, if one or more employees of an employer are employed solely or mainly to perform duties in connection with one or more businesses carried on by one or more other persons, Mm -hmm. then those two businesses will catch a group. So if we use that same example of the employee of the dog grooming business, potentially not caught, just depending on whether or not they're employed solely or mainly to perform duties in Mm -hmm. connection with the coffee business. Yep. And then the third one is if one or more employees of an employer performs duties in connection with one or more businesses carried on by one or more other persons and in connection with or in fulfilment of the employer's obligation under a relevant agreement, then those two employers will mm. constitute a group.
2: Yeah.
1: So in that example, if our businesses, like if our, the entities carrying on our businesses have an agreement that you will, that I will, the dog grooming business will supply, uh, you know, one person to work the weekend shifts at the coffee shop business. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're grouped under that. So you see there that there are, you know, key phrases, I think, in each of those three tests and they pick up the term performing duties in connection with. And I think that that's key because, you know, even though arguably these common employee tests will apply so very broadly mm. to you know, arguably catch anyone who works in two different businesses to group the businesses. Mm. Um, I think the cases really show that, you know, it's not it's not that broad. So yeah. there's been an interpretation, I think, through, through the authorities that have narrowed that.
0: Yeah. Because yeah. I think if you read it, um, if you gave performed duties a, a very literal meaning, I mean, anyone who provides services for another company could be performing duties in connection with that that business. So every time we have an employed solicitor that helps give legal advice to a to a client, potentially they're performing duties in connection with another business. And that would that would result in so you get an absurd result in yeah. those circumstances. Um so the uh, the way that perform duties is narrowed down.
1: Yeah, so the the courts have essentially said that there has to be some form of employee relationship between the worker. So mm-hmm. yeah, you know, in this case, the pe- person working across both both businesses. Yep. And the second business. So in our example before, there has to be a, a, an employment um, relationship or an employee relationship between. Mm-hmm the employee of the dog grooming business that then goes to work weekends at the coffee shop. Yeah.
0: So if that employee comes up to the coffee shop and is at the manager of the coffee shop's absolute direction, so, you know, pour this milk into this jug and hand out these coffees, Mm -hmm. are we caught?
1: Yeah, potentially. Yeah. I think it's a real risk that, that that's caught in that situation.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But conversely, if... um. You know, if that employee works for a finance company um, and is put on secondment but reports back to the original employer mm-hmm. and is always at the direction and control of the original employer yeah, yeah. rather than the business that that person is physically sitting in, hmm. then you could potentially have a different result.
0: So if I wanted to organize a dog grooming day app at the uh, the coffee shop at the Sunshine yeah, Coast, yeah, good Interland, example. Um, you could have employ You could send employees up there. Yeah. Do some dog grooming yep. up there. People could have a coffee and watch their. I'll uh, send
1: them with a specific direction not to listen to you <laughs> if you try to tell them how to groom the dogs. You know.
0: <laughs> and then, uh, then we're not grouped. Um, but I guess one that uh, maybe coffee shops and dog grooming is not the most common example in practice. But one that we regularly see for this is locums. Mm. So where we're talking about medical practices, and then. Um, you know, somebody wants to go on a, an overseas holiday to Europe for six weeks or eight weeks and then we get a locum dropped into that business for that time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We've got a problem then?
1: Mm, it really depends, I think, and it's, yeah. a, it's a factual case. There's been a few cases where, you know, the courts have said that they're not grouped um, as common employees because really you don't have that level of direction and control. Mm. It's not like an administration assistant sitting in a medical practice mm. that then is at the direction of the doctors in that in that medical practice.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really going to be fact dependent, isn't it? Because you might also end up with a yeah, different set of facts where you've got like a, a nurse or yep. um, somebody who's very much at the direction and control of the the, the management of the the yep. practice. Um, so it's really then a specific question of factors to. Whether they're carrying on their own activities in a different location, or um, whether they have become at the direction of the new business.
1: Yeah, you might also get a different result depending on your years of experience as mm. a locum. You might have a registrar, um, you know, straight yeah. out of training. Yeah. Um, who you know does need a little bit more guidance. I think that'll probably be a bit yeah. more of a borderline case than potentially, you know, your nursing or your admin assistants versus mm. you know a seasoned locum doctor.
0: But maybe that's it. I think if there's locum arrangements, it's worth having a look at because we don't want to be caught with a an assumption that people aren't grouped or businesses aren't grouped when actually the locum arrangement's causing a problem. Yeah. Um Okay, let's go back now to commonly controlled businesses where we started and specifically. Oh, before we do, can yeah. I
1: can I just say that we, we don't forget about common employees, though? Like, once yeah. I think the tendency so much is to go straight to the commonly controlled businesses test because mm. it's, it's a much neater way of yeah, determining. It's much more. Yeah, you know, You've got you, all the facts you look in at front an ASIC of you. search, you look at a few documents, yeah. and you can tick off some boxes to say, yeah, yeah, these are the controlling interests that are common across these businesses. Mm. But if at the end of that, if at the end of that exercise we don't think that the entities are grouped, don't forget about the common yeah. employees test. Yeah, that's right. It's amazing how often it's
0: it is, isn't not it?
1: considered or just But it's
0: also amazing over. how often it, it gets picked up in practice because somebody's got a favourite manager, for example. So you've got business owners and they've put a manager in one business and they really like them because they do a good job and then suddenly that manager's doing a couple of days week work for the new business that's starting up suddenly we do have a risk that we've got common employees.
2: Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm. sorry. Back to Go back to commonly, commonly controlled control businesses. businesses. <laughs>
0: yeah, okay. Um, and I specifically want to talk about trusts. Mm. So discretionary trusts, family trusts, because they are a pain. They're a massive pain for payroll tax grouping. It's very true. Um. So why? Why is- What's the? It's in the legislation. What's the heart of payroll tax being a pain for trusts and trusts not working mm. for payroll tax?
1: Really good, really good question. Two reasons, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, because any trust is deemed to be a business for payroll tax purposes. Yep. So the section says that um, yeah, you know, if a business is being carried on by a trust, any trust, including a dormant trust, mm-hmm. that will be a business for. Yep payroll tax purposes. And then there are also deeming provisions um, that say that a person who may benefit under a discretionary trust, so we're looking at any eligible beneficiary, mm-hmm. um, will be deemed to have a controlling interest, that is an interest that is more than 50% of the value of interest in the trusts. Mm-hmm. So if you have a family trust
0: and... I mean, that's wild. It's as wild. A, as it's a nice. Yeah.
1: I mean, conceivably, you have a trust, I have a trust. There's a charity that's common to both trusts, so mm. therefore our trusts are grouped because that charity has a controlling interest in each of our trusts. Because it's
0: a discretionary beneficiary. Yeah, because, yeah.
1: It's, yeah, because it's a discretionary beneficiary. Has no uh, – no, May no, never get a distribution.
2: May
0: never, may get, never a distri- get a
1: distribution. Mm-hmm. Can't control
0: yeah.
1: you know, the decisions of the trustee mm. in any way, shape or form,
2: yeah.
1: but uh, is deemed to have a controlling interest in that business. Um so where you have a business that's carried on uh, by a trust carried on under a trust, the person or set of persons, so again we're looking at that whether or not there's a person or set of persons that has a controlling interest, uh, whether or not as trustee or the beneficiary of another trust is the beneficiary in respect of more than 50 percent of the value of the interest in the trust under which the business is carried on.
0: Mm.
1: So uh, that's where our problems come.
0: All right, so let's drop that into our case study. So um, I'll change the facts again. Mm -hmm. So now the two businesses are not carried on by companies but by trusts. So Mm -hmm. my coffee shop in the Sunshine Coast hinterland is run by a trust. Um, It's got a corporate trustee, but that doesn't really matter for the purpose of what we're talking about at the moment. Um, And your dog grooming company is also run by a trust. Mm -hmm. Now we've got a potential beneficiary. So not somebody who's named in the schedule, so it's not you or Corey or me or Risi or somebody who's actually named there as a primary beneficiary, or default not beneficiary. Yep. It's hidden in the class of tertiary beneficiaries, might be a charity, might be some other company that we both happen to be. <laughs> might be a partnership that we're both partners <laughs> in. <laughs> that happens Better. to be common to both trusts. <laughs> um, so are those two trusts grouped? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's... It's a minefield.
0: <laughs> now, in this case, because, I mean, we've, we've taken the case study along on the basis that we both know about each other's mm. businesses in Brisbane and on the, the Sunshine Coast here, but conceivably this could also pick up uh, a trust that's, um, uh, you know, controlled by a brother-in-law, a sister-in-law, parents, somebody who's likely to be a beneficiary of one of our family trusts at the moment. But we've got absolutely zero sight yep. um, that these trusts exist.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But it also happened in you know in the Smeaton Grange case. Mm.
2: Um,
1: the son was carrying on a very active business, had an unpaid payroll tax liability, um, and mum and dad's family trust, dormant asset, passive holding, passive asset holding family trust, gets brought into the group. So, yeah. it just it happens. Horrendous
2: consequences.
0: Horrendous
1: consequences. Yeah. But isn't it funny? You just sort of get used to the horrendous consequences, but they really are. Yeah, yeah. Anyway,
0: all right. So, um, not so great. Um, then we've got uh, we've got other trusts who are just holding passive assets. Now mm. we've spoken about these um, being. Uh, court under the grouping provision. So it doesn't matter that the, the trust is, carrying on a, is, is not carrying on a business or whether it is carrying on a business or not carrying on a business. Um, but the next thing that we want to think about then is what happens where we've got multiple smaller payroll tax groups?
1: Mm. Uh, where you have multiple smaller payroll tax groups. So uh, if there's a group that consists of our dog grooming business and our coffee shop business, mm-hmm. And then uh, there's also a payroll tax group that consists of your coffee shop business Mm -hmm. and a business that you run with your wife, Risi, on the side, for example. Yep. Then because the coffee shop business, so we've got two smaller payroll tax groups, (laughs) Mm -hmm. because the coffee shop business is common to both of those groups, Mm -hmm. both of those groups get subsumed, (laughs) an excellent (laughs) word if you ask me, into one larger super payroll tax group. So you now got a situation where my dog grooming business, which potentially has nothing to do with the business that you and Reese are operating, Mm -hmm. um, is in the same payroll tax group and is joint and severally liable for the payroll tax, any unpaid payroll tax liabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and also- doesn't get the benefit of the threshold or the deduction for payroll tax purposes. Yeah, and all of those three businesses are in the same payroll tax group.
0: Yeah, so I mean a real risk where a husband and wife are carrying on very separate business activities, mm-hmm. um, and there's a discretionary trust involved because mm-hmm. chances are the the discretionary trust is going to mean that the wife's caught in with the husband's group and the husband's caught in with the wife's group. Now you know, if the husband's carrying on a simple coffee shop business and the wife has a business empire that's carrying on a whole stack of trading activities and there's 20 entities that all form part of a payroll tax group, so suddenly the husband's business is in that group and if the husband's business is also grouped with their business partners grouped, that group, it's all grouped.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Everyone's liable. So if somebody – Problematic. Yeah, yeah. So then if – I mean if we – we're talking about taxable wages at the moment, but if somebody has got a contractor problem or an employment agent problem and has missed it over a period of years, we're looking at you know, multi-million dollar payroll tax liabilities coming home to you know, potentially a discretionary trust that's yeah. got assets, just like Smeat and Grange.
1: Just like Smeet and Grange, like Sweet and Grange. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And to a person that potentially has nothing to do with a company that has the unpaid mm-hmm. payroll tax liability. And I think that that's key for a lot of these yeah, you know, large scale grouping issues that we see is that there's always someone who, yeah, you know, the grouping has been so unintentional and yeah. it's, and it, it's so broad that there's always someone who just commercially should never be in a position where they're liable for this,
2: yeah,
1: you know, very far removed yeah. entities payroll tax liability. But that's the way I guess the grouping provisions work. Yeah.
0: They're, they're- so I mean, these pesky discretionary beneficiaries. Um, how do we deal with them? Well,
1: can you get rid of them? <laughs> I mean, the short answer is like you can. So yeah. you can the, the beneficiaries can disclaim their interests in the trust. Yeah. Yeah. So they yeah the issue that you have there is um, that whilst that can be and is effective um, from the trust and trust law perspective mm. it's really only going to be uh, effective as against or for payroll tax purposes as against the commissioner mm. from the date of the disclaimer yep. so you can't fix it up going
0: backwards can't fix it up going backwards which means you need to know the problem
1: you need to yeah you need to understand and yeah. you know it's a problem that is constantly missed mm. um just because of the way that payroll tax is dealt with, I think.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, it's not something that's on the forefront of everyone's mind. And then if you're running a business and you're starting it up from scratch, you're always thinking, well, I don't need to pay payroll tax until I pay wages of whatever the threshold is of $1.3 million a year. Mm-hmm. So it's not a, you know, it's not an advice, it's not in the accountant's or the advisor's minds until they're hitting that figure. But yeah. if we've missed a grouping problem, that $1.3 million comes a lot sooner yeah. than anyone expects. Yeah. And it could be there from day one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think for that, I mean the other point is that you know, disclaimers are great once the the um, problem has been identified. But the other thing is just to think about if somebody's getting a new trust and is getting an off-the-shelf deed, typically mm. at the moment though, the deed providers have a very, very broad class of beneficiaries and they're drafted that way so that – you know, you can distribute to a, a very- yeah,
1: you got the flexibility,
0: absolutely. Massive like- flexibility um, without having to go and appoint a beneficiary each time. But particularly in these circumstances, you might think about that it's better to have a much uh, a cut down class of beneficiaries, deal with those to start with, be comfortable that you don't have a payroll tax grouping risk or that you've, you know, you've got an eye to that payroll tax grouping risk. And then if there's somebody else that you want to appoint as a discretionary beneficiary at a later time, you do it at a later time. Mm. So deal with it the other way around, start narrow and then broaden, broaden if you it. need to rather than start broad and have these risks in there.
1: Yeah. I think it goes back to, you know, you've got to think about the purpose of what the trust is going to do and yeah, you know, what it exists for as well. Yeah. It's not just the case, I think, anymore that you can just have a, a trust that, carries on multiple businesses is really now a situation where you've got to think a bit more carefully about its purpose and what you need it to do.
0: Yeah. And from day one.
1: And from day one. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, we'll leave it there for today. So in our next episode, what we're going to look at is when entities can be degrouped for payroll tax purposes. So not disclaimers and not removing directors or adding directors, but exclusion order applications.
1: Yeah, so we'll be a little bit more positive in the next one. I think we've got the doom and gloom.
2: Stay stay tuned for, well, the, that's, for that's, the solution.
0: Yeah, that's it. Wherever there's a problem, there's a solution. Um, so if you're enjoying Taxland, please follow us and leave us a rating on Spotify. Just remember, we're now on a new channel. You can find us by searching Taxland with Fletch and Sarah on Spotify. Um, and we're still keen to acquire uh, enough followers because once we've got enough followers um we've had some feedback that uh, people like the very initial merchandise that we produced for taxland so once we hit a particular follower threshold which we haven't decided what that will be yet <laughs> <laughs> might coincide with the purchase order going in but we will get some uh, taxland merchandise and uh, and look to share that uh, in the future um until then thanks for traveling to taxland with me flet Heineman
1: and me sarah lancaster